Anyway, Genesis 15, that's where you want to be right now on your, uh, in your Bible or on your electronic device set on vibrate. Well, you know, other churches confiscate your stuff, but, uh, or at least make you turn it off. Uh, but uh, we like you to have your devices on because that's uh, how we push information to you. So you're in Genesis 15, put in there at verse 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 21. The topic uh, there is that God causes a deep sleep to come upon Abraham as he promises to give him the promised land as an inheritance. The title of our message, He Sees You When You're Sleeping. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for every opportunity to open your word. And uh, it's... uh, Special time, Lord, when the body gets together, when Christians get together and study your word together. I think you have a different message and a different way of delivering it, Lord, to a group than you do to our own hearts. And certainly you speak to us individually, but you also speak to us corporately, Lord, as a, as a, a congregation, as a body, as a, uh, an army, uh, in all the different metaphors that you use so that we can make a difference, Lord, in the world in which you've uh, planted us. As we look at Abraham, Lord, we already have seen so many lessons that resonate with our own hearts. I pray that you would do that again today by the ministry and power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. The fantasy has come true. A long-lost relative you have never heard of has died. And you just received an email from a lawyer indicating that you might be the only heir Well, not quite. Somebody with your last name died without any heirs, and the promise is that you can prove that you actually have that name. The lawyer will send you millions of dollars. All you have to do is pay some legal fees up front and fax over your identification and your bank account number. It's a scam, right? Don't fall for it. And no, I don't know that by personal example, but it is a scam. Truth is, most Americans have little to look forward to in terms of inheritance. According to recent statistics, only about 8% of Americans get any inheritance of any kind. And those who do will inherit less than $25,000. Less than 2% of Americans receive more than $100,000 in inheritance monies, and the average inheritance is spent in less than two years. The scams and the sketchiness of inheritances can render it difficult for us to really wrap our heads around the promises we encounter in the Bible that we each have, quote, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. That you recognize from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Maybe you don't doubt what is waiting for you, but you have doubts while you're waiting as you experience various trials and tragedies. I mean, you... You're either unsure of this inheritance or you're sure of it, but life is difficult in the meantime. If any of this resonates with you, then Abraham's your guy. He flat out asked God to give him a guarantee of his promised inheritance. Assured of it, he waited for it with a style of living by faith that has become the standard for every subsequent believer. It prompts me to ask these two questions around which I will organize my thoughts. Number one, how do you really know you have a spiritual inheritance reserved in heaven? And number two, how do you roll knowing you have a spiritual inheritance reserved 
in heaven. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 7 and 8. How do you know? God promised Abraham an inheritance. Verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Abraham's response was a little surprising, at least on the surface. And he said, verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Was the guy noted for his faith doubting the word of God? I don't think Abraham was doubting God's word. If anything, he was taking God at his word. God promised Abraham he would give him this land to inherit it. Now, when someone gives you something, it is yours to own and use and enjoy. But if they promise to give it to you as an inheritance, then you need to wait for it. I was just talking to one of the young adults in the cafe this morning, and they were talking, uh, telling me that their grandpa has a car for them, a really cool car. Uh, and I said, well, when's it coming? He goes, well, when he dies. Uh, so he's going to give it to her as an inheritance. And so it's hers, maybe, when he dies. That's kind of the idea. And so Abraham... Uh, you know, he, he understands what God is saying. And his question is asked in light of his believing God that he would never in this life possess the land, but that it would be indeed an inheritance possessed by his descendants of which he had none at the time. And so Abraham's really expressing a great faith here. He's saying, okay, I believe you that everything you've promised me is an inheritance. I don't even have any children yet. Uh, to whom, you know, this promise can come true. But uh, I believe you. I just want to know how I can experience that in my life right now. And this is how Abraham lived. He is described as a pilgrim and a sojourner looking forward to a city, not on earth, but in heaven, a city whose builder and maker is God. And so I'd say Abraham had faith not doubts when he asked God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, I'm going to suggest that the real point of his question was something like this. God, since I will never really possess in this life what you have promised me as my inheritance, how can I experience the effects of what you have promised me every day from now until I arrive in heaven? In fact, this word translated no means to know relationally or experientially, to know by experience or to experience something. And so I see this more as a request than a question. Abraham requested something by which he might experience his inheritance on a daily basis. We don't talk enough about experiencing God. We're more, I would say generally, we're more rational than we are relational and after all, experiences can get weird. Uh, in fact, in a church setting, whenever you talk about experiencing God, somebody thinks you're going Pentecostal now, aren't you? You, you, you know, uh, went to some meeting and now you're going to writhe on the floor. And so, you know, people are, they're, they don't like the idea of experiencing God because, you know, we have the Bible and we're very rational. Nevertheless, we are in a relationship with God, and he himself often describes it in experiential terms. One of God's favorite illustrations of our relationship with him is that of a feast. Pastor and author Tim Keller comments, and I quote, A feast is a place where our appetites and our senses of sight, smell, sound, and taste are filled up. 
In one place, we are even told to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's Psalm 34, verse 8. Picking up on that taste test, uh, conservative Jonathan Edwards once wrote, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. And so one of the, I guess you'd call it tensions of the Christian life is, uh, you know, to, to understand the rational and the relational, uh, you know, a relationship with God isn't just study hall where we get together with the Lord and he teaches us things and then we go our way. It's also a feast. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when I go to a feast and there's honey on the table, I want to put it on something. I want to experience that. I already know that it's sweet. Uh, I know that it's going to taste good, but I want to actually have that experience as well. Now, God is going to give Abraham an experience. He's going to give him a taste. Is there a corollary in our lives as Christians by which we taste and see that the Lord is good? Well, yes. First, remember that you and I have been promised a future inheritance. What is it exactly? The place to start talking about our inheritance is with Jesus Christ, because it is written of Jesus that, quote, he has been appointed heir of all things, which includes the entire universe. We learn in Hebrews chapter one. We're also told in Hebrews chapter two that all things will be put into subjection to him. And so Jesus Christ, God's son, is the heir of all things. All created things and all things to be recreated, they all belong to Jesus. They are His inheritance. And everything will be put in subjection to Him. Then isn't it mind-blowing when you get to Romans 8.17 and believers, you and I, are called joint heirs with Jesus. In other words, we inherit Everything that Jesus inherits. We are his joint heirs. You and I will inherit everything that is the Lord's and that is everything. And so I don't know what you've been thinking in the past about your uh, heavenly inheritance. But I had to adjust my thinking a little bit. I, I used to think of my inheritance. I, you know, I, I sort of think of my inheritance and my rewards as as the same thing. But they're actually a little bit different, aren't they? God is going to reward me hopefully, at the judgment of Jesus Christ, at the bema of Jesus Christ. When I am absent from this body and present with the Lord, there's going to be a review of my life, I'm told in Scripture. And those things that I did from the right motive and faithfully, the Lord is going to reward me with various crowns, I hope, and you hope. But that's different than your heavenly inheritance, you find out, because you inherit everything. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Everything in subjection to Jesus is subject to you. And so, uh, wow, you get it all. In the meantime, while we are waiting, God has graciously given us a way to experience our promised inheritance. It's a way to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, we're kind of in the same boat that Abraham was in. God said, I'm going to give 
this land to your descendants as their inheritance. God says to us, everything belongs to you as your inheritance, but you don't own it now. And so what is this taste? Well, in Ephesians 1.14, we're told that God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer is, I quote, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. This word guarantee, it can be translated earnest, which means the down payment. God lives within us as a guaranteed down payment of everything we have been promised as an inheritance. We're going to see Abraham is going to have this crazy experience of God walking through a sacrifice and that is going to suffice for him uh, to remind him that he has an inheritance uh, reserved in heaven for him and that his descendants are going to inherit the land and all of that. You and I have the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that God is going to do all the things that He has promised to do for us. Not just the inheritance, as great as that is, but that He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. That He really is going to change you and I into the image of Jesus Christ, conforming us to that. That we're going to turn out okay. We're, we're going to turn out just the way God wants us to. Because he's the one doing the work. And whenever I, you know, whenever I stumble and fall or whenever I have my doubts and my fears or whatever, whatever you want to put in that, you know, category, God says, I live in you. My presence dwells in your heart. You're absolutely different than you were before you were saved. And I guarantee you that the things I've told you I'm going to do will come to pass. And so it's not so much just a rational understanding of, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how I feel. God actually wants to give us good feelings. He wants to say, hey, I'm in you. Let's have a feast. Let's enjoy this journey that we're on. Let's have some fun with this in a Christ-honoring way. How do you really know and experience right now that you have a spiritual inheritance reserved in heaven? You have the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in you every day and every moment of every day. If that isn't a foretaste of heaven, I don't know what is. Now, and this is a whole other subject for another time, but I think uh, as we study the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit and His presence in us, I think a lot of times we're not having a better experience or a greater foretaste of heaven because we're not really depending on the Holy Spirit the way we could. We, we are extremely rational. We're given to intellect. And, uh, you know, our default position, you know, pretty much is intellectual. I understand this, therefore I experience this. And so, uh, you know, I find the three points, I find the five points, I can explain it, therefore I experience it. And, and uh, a lot of times we're not really depending on the Lord, we're depending on our own intellect, we're depending on our own rationality, we're depending on our, uh, our own smarts and common sense and those kinds of things. And so we don't have the experience of, uh, you know, waiting on the Lord and seeing what the Lord will do because we're just too rational. 
we pray about things, but, but only at the beginning and the end of long conversations about them. Have you ever you noticed that? that uh, and, you know, we do this. To, you have a church meeting sometimes or a, a meeting at a Christian organization. And, of course, you open in prayer. If you don't open in prayer, you're a heathen and an unbeliever. I mean, you have to open in prayer. I mean, absolutely right, because you're Christians. I have to open. Every time somebody comes in for counseling, I have to open in prayer or else they look at me like, what happened just now? How can you tell me anything? You didn't open in prayer. And so you open in prayer, you close in prayer. That takes maybe 35, 40 seconds, depending on you know, how verbose you are. And then you talk for an hour. Sometimes I think it'd be better to see you guys need some counseling. Yeah, let's just pray for an hour. Yeah, no, we need counseling. Yeah, you need prayer. I mean, that'd be weird. Wouldn't that be weird? Sitting here, you think, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. That's our new counseling program. Until somebody comes in for counseling, you say, I'm just going to pray for you for an hour. Yeah, is there somebody else I can talk to? Is Pastor Gino here? Anybody else? An elder, a deacon? Is there somebody? Is there another church, you know, somewhere that I, I need to talk to somebody? Yeah, let's talk to God. No. No, what are you talking about? And so I'm not, this isn't a burden for anybody. I just realized that, you know, I mean, our default position is I'm doing okay. I understand some things. I don't really need the Holy Spirit right now to, and so I, I don't have those experiences. I'm not listening for him to tell me where to go and who to talk to and what to say because I know what to do and who to say. Uh, who, yeah, who to say. Dang, oh, I know, <laughs> you know. So, um, I don't know. You understand what I'm talking about. It's like the, the father in uh, Mary Poppins, Banks. What was his name? What's his first name? I don't know. George Banks. Yeah, thank you. God bless you, sister. He said, what do you say when you don't know what to say? And he says, well, I always know what to say. But he didn't until he said supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And then he was set free to really experience the joy of living. And he kept his job at the bank. In fact, he had a better job at the bank. And he also had a relationship with his wife and family. And it was great because he always knew what to say. And sometimes I think Christians always know what to say. I know what to say. I know how to pray. I know how to do all of that. If I ever get in a real bind, life-threatening disease, my car is hurtling off a cliff, you know, something like that, then I can depend on the Holy Spirit in that moment. But in the meantime, he's kind of set me free to just do my own thing. And so we're not really tasting and seeing that the Lord is good uh, because we're pretty much doing our own thing. Maybe that hits, maybe it doesn't. Uh, If it does, uh, then let's uh, break out of that and ask the Lord to just remind us that he lives within us. And that should be an amazing, powerful thing. Uh, Just on a very basic level the next time i want to be in a bad mood or complain or be upset or whatever i'm going to be reminded that hey i'm in here what are you doing i the holy spirit i raised jesus from the dead i can handle your bad attitude why don't you just give that over to me and let's love your enemy and pray for him and those kinds of things and so i think we could do a more radical living If that's not a foretaste of heaven, having heaven in your heart, as it were, I don't know what is. And so now, verses 9 through 21, how do you roll knowing you have a spiritual inheritance reserved in heaven? Well, we said that Abraham realized he would never own the land. He was being given it as an inheritance. How should he live? Well, in verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two down the middle and he placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Dr. J. Vernon McGee commented on this saying, when men made a contract in that day, this is the way they made it. They would prepare a sacrifice in this manner. The party of the first part joined hands with the party of the second part. They stated their contract and then they walked through the sacrifice. In that day, this corresponded to going down to the courthouse and signing before a notary public in our day. Next time you buy a car, bring some animals. And then when they want you to sign, just say, no, we have to, I have to cut these animals. We're going to walk through the middle of them in the showroom. I don't think that will work. But Now, as we will see, God and Abraham do not walk together through this sacrifice. Abraham doesn't walk through it. There was nothing required of Abraham, nothing he could bring to the table, as it were. Why the ceremony was to establish to Abraham that God was going to give him the land as an inheritance and it was to illustrate God was giving it with absolutely no conditions for Abraham to meet or any contribution to make on his part. Now, God doesn't get to walking through this sacrifice until verse 17. In the intervening time, God shows Abraham how he should live as he waits as he sojourns, as he looks for the heavenly city. Verse 11, And the vultures came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. You have to really picture this scene. Abraham had prepared the prescribed sacrifice. He had set out all the pieces. And the expectation, I would guess, when you did this with another human being, was that you'd get on with the sacrifice because of this very thing. You don't want the sacrifice to start to smell and all these carrion birds and stuff. And so he, had, he did all this, and yet he's just sitting around all by himself. We'll find out all day. If you were looking on this scene, you'd wonder who he was waiting for. Was it God? Was it the God he'd left Ur to follow? If so, God seemed like he was a no-show, or at least he was very late. Does God ever seem to be a no-show in your life? Does he ever seem late? sometimes even very late? The answer, the honest answer is yes. From our human perspective, he does. F.B. Meyer wrote these insightful words. He said, it is not easy to watch with God or to wait for him. The orbit of his providence is so vast. The stages of his progress are so wide apart. He holds on his way through the ages. We tire in a few short hours. And when his dealings with us are perplexing and mysterious, the heart that had boasted its unwavering loyalty begins to grow faint with misgivings and to question. Now, to add to Abraham's waiting, vultures smelled or saw the carcasses and started to pick away at them. He had to drive them off. He had to remain there in order to be able to drive them off. He couldn't go to lunch. He couldn't do anything. He had to hang out at the sacrifice until the Lord came. You must remain at the place of sacrifice if you want to be able to drive off doubts and fears and all such things as assault your faith. That place of sacrifice is for us the cross of Jesus Christ. Thus, you and I must daily live in the shadow of the cross, being willing to lay down our lives and our own will in order to be able to honestly say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, verse 12, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Abraham's taste of heaven wasn't all sweet. He experienced horror and great darkness to represent to him that life would often hold tragedy and suffering. 
We need to believe the Lord that in the world we will have trouble, but that he has nevertheless overcome the world. Part of Abraham experiencing darkness and horror was in identification with things that would befall his descendants. The history of the Jews most definitely includes horror and great darkness. And the next few verses are a prophetic history lesson. Look at verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return to me, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Abraham was enabled to see Israel's future 400-year captivity in Egypt. He saw the Israelites come out of Egypt and with great spoil and enter the land Abraham was being given as an inheritance for them. We are able to see many things on the horizon thanks to the prophecies yet to be fulfilled that we read in the Bible. We see, for example, the future seven-year great tribulation coming upon the planet to prepare it for the second coming of Jesus. As far as Abraham, he would remain a pilgrim in the land and then die and be buried in it. Many believers in Jesus Christ have already died, remaining strangers and pilgrims. I'm hoping for the rapture, but I too may die still looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham's descendants in the fourth generation would return and claim the land as theirs by a divine grant. They would conquer the Amorites that they encountered there as well as the other inhabitants of Canaan we'll read about in a moment. Why the wait? Well, there are many reasons, but one important one was that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. What that means is that God was giving the Amorites and by extension the other peoples of that land opportunity to repent of their iniquities. 400 years, his long-suffering waited for them to repent. And when the children of Israel first go in the land, you see that they could have repented. God said, I want you to kill everybody. It's been 400 years, that's it. And the very first thing that happens is they go into Jericho and Rahab, the harlot, repents and trusts the Lord as a token of what could have happened to all those people. You say, well, was God confused? No, he's always acting according to his nature. He sent Jonah to warn Nineveh. Judgment's coming in 40 days. Then what did they do? They repented. And he said, okay, well then I don't have to do that now because it's in my nature and character to forgive. And so uh, 400 years God waits for those people to turn to him. And we find out again from Rahab that they had heard of God. They knew who he was. But they decided to stay in their sin. God's long-suffering It can't wait forever. We live in a time in which God's long-suffering waits. A lot of the problems in the world today, well, not the problems themselves, but every day that God waits to resurrect and rapture the church and get on with the great tribulation is a day in which massive amounts of suffering take place. But none of it can compare to the eternal suffering of a soul in hell. And so God's long-suffering waits for the world to repent. Time is nearing its end. Meanwhile, folks are getting saved. Now, God would send Israel under Joshua's leadership to both claim their land and to destroy the sinful inhabitants of it. This tells me that between here and heaven, I can expect conflict and combat. The promised land, the land of Canaan in the Bible, is not a picture of heaven, notwithstanding some of the famous hymns. When Joshua 
passed over into the promised land, he fought many battles and he never totally conquered the land. And so it's not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of life right now. Victory assured us, but a lot of combat. In our case, the battle is spiritual and so should the weapons be, but make no mistake about it, we are at war. Verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Abraham had to wait all day, shooing vultures and enduring terrors. Then a smoking oven and a burning torch go through the pieces. There are no end of interpretations of what these might symbolize, so let's try to keep it simple. Remember what this was. It was a legal ceremony in which two parties would walk through a sacrifice to ratify a contract. The two parties here are Abraham and God, but Abraham is not a participant. That means these symbols represent God walking through that sacrifice alone. The smoking oven is really a small furnace that would be used to refine metals. The torch was a torch which served as a light in those days. Now, since we have the benefit of the complete Bible, I can't help but suggest that both of these symbols represent Jesus Christ who walked through the sacrifice alone, as it were, when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. I was paralyzed in my sins, but Jesus went to the cross and walked through that sacrifice. Why represent Jesus as a smoking furnace? Well, if I think in terms of how I am to be living while I await my inheritance, which is sort of the theme of this section, I'm told I will find myself in the furnace of suffering, but someone will always be in it with me. The story of Daniel's three friends in the book of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the burning, smoking, fiery furnace, heated up seven times normal. Not only it didn't kill them, it didn't even singe them or leave a smell of smoke on them. And when Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he saw a fourth person walking with them. He said it looked like the Son of God. And so Jesus went through this suffering alone, this sacrifice alone. He ratified that covenant alone without me because there was nothing I could contribute to it. But he promises me that now that I am in the fiery furnace of this time of waiting for his return, he will be in it with me. The torch, of course, symbolizes him as the light of the world. But more importantly, as a light to me, to my path through this world to the next. And so when I'm in that furnace, Jesus is with me lighting the way. I think that's the simplest, purest and one of the most beautiful ways to understand this symbolism. Now, verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Back in the day, we used to add the out of sights and people would laugh, but now nobody knows what that means. So now here's the land grant to Abraham's descendants. It was God's to give and he gave it unconditionally to Israel. Technically, God's covenant with Abraham was made in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's being ratified by God here in chapter 15. The promise of the land, of descendants, and of blessing all nations of the earth, those are the three main points of what is called the Abrahamic covenant. We understand this to be literal and physical. 
It is a real granting of land to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, through whom the Savior, Jesus Christ, came to bless all the nations of the world with the knowledge of salvation and the offer of eternal life. And we also understand that the fulfillment is yet future when Jesus will physically return to earth to rescue Israel and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Meantime, we can live as those fully expecting to receive our inheritance as we taste and see that the Lord is good. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen?